Scripture reading this morning is from Zechariah chapter 9, um, and I'll be reading the entire chapter, so it is a bit of a longer passage, but please follow along as I read God's word. This is Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 17. The oracle of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her her possessions And strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon will see it, and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth, and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and yet <clears throat> and be filled and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people, for like jewel, like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. This passage of Zechariah is, and in Zechariah, is full of contrast. It's full of this tremendous tension and this contrast, which fits well going into, um, into Holy Week into the the Passion Week that we're going into right now in the church calendar. 
Zechariah, more than any of the other prophets, the Old Testament prophets, is quoted by the gospel writers during this week, this period of Christ's life. As Christ rides into Jerusalem up until his death, burial, and resurrection, of course, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are always quoting the Old Testament prophets that shows the, the unity of Scripture. But for this period of Christ's life and his ministry, they focus on the prophet Zechariah. And of course, this is where it starts in um, the familiar passage in verse 9 that's um, quoted in a couple of places in the New Testament talking about the Lord coming on a donkey into Jerusalem to claim his, his own and to continue his ministry there. But before that, in Zechariah, there are these contrasts that, that start out, and we'll be looking at, at uh, some of them this morning. I want to look at two, two sets of contrasts in particular, and then a third point. I want to look first at the king that is... Um, the kings that are mentioned. There's the kings of the, of the peoples um, around Israel, and then there's the king that's coming. And then secondly, there's, there's the contrast between the blood. There's the blood of the people's sacrifices around Israel, the pagan nations and their man-made religions, and the blood of the, of the covenant that is to come. And then finally, there is no contrast here, but there is, there is the rescue. There's the rescue and the restoration that God will bring to his people. So let's take a look first at, at the kings, the kings that are mentioned and the nations that, uh, that represent them or that they represent. It starts out saying in verse 2 about Tyre and Sidon that they are very wise. These are, these are wise nations with wise kings. Elsewhere it talks about how the wisdom of their kings. It says Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, um, this will happen. They have worldly wisdom, and that, that is a wisdom that's helped them out a lot. It's given them a great advantage over their, uh, over their neighbors and over the people of God at this point. It's allowed them to accrue wealth. It says in verse 3 um, that, they, that Tyre has heaped up for herself silver like dust, and gold like the fine, I'm sorry, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Through their great wisdom, they've managed to accrue this vast wealth for themselves and bring it from all over, historically from all over the Mediterranean um, and make it so common that it wasn't even, wasn't even a thing. It wasn't even worth much. You know, they, you know there's, some, there's some gold and there's some dirt, there's some silver, there's some dust. It, uh, it wasn't anything to them anymore. They had become just that wealthy through their great wisdom and also through their military might. That's the third thing that it points out about them. It says that once they had accrued all of this wealth through their wisdom, that Tyre built up for herself a rampart to protect it. Great defensive ability and military might she surrounded um, her wealth with and the, the wisdom of her kings. And also, um, might on the sea that, that there was uh, there was a sea power that Tyre had, and it says in verse four, it talks about her power on the sea. That's a scary thing. These were the enemies of God. They were the enemies of the people of God, and th- 
they had set themselves up um, to fight against Jerusalem and to fight against Israel and to fight against God himself. But the, the other thing that we see about all of these um, all of these kings and all of these nations that have exalted themselves against God is that ultimately they're fruitless. Ultimately, all of these nations fail, even, even as their great power and their wealth and their wisdom are being described. It talks about them being struck down. It says, Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, in verse 4, because the eye of the Lord is on mankind. He's seen this, and he does not let it go by. It says his eye, it says a couple of times in, in this passage that his eye is there, and then it is watching them. And into that contrast rides the king in Jerusalem, starting um, in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. This king was going to be different. It's going to be a new type of king that nobody, nobody would have expected to come. It says he came righteous. That's good. That, that reminds you of David. Having salvation, that, reminded you, that would remind one of uh, someone with military might that, um, that could that was strong enough to save, and certainly this king would be strong enough to save. But then it says humble, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey in verse 9. The king did not come on a charger, rather he came on uh, um, the lowliest of beasts of burden, the very least of these, and he came with humility, that word Humble, um, that's used to describe the the God King here, is another way to translate that would be gentle. In some of your translations, it might have that. Uh, It is a word that is described as meek in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This King would come exemplifying that, the one that was looked forward to. It's a word that doesn't mean Weakness, of course, having salvation, you can't be weak and have salvation, and this king would have that. But it means that that the power that is had by the meek one will be under control. First of all, it will be under the control of God, and it will be for the good of God's people. They look forward to one who would come and have this power for their good, not like a wild animal like a wild horse that goes chasing its own instincts for its own gain, um, whatever it wants, this one would be humble and gentle as one whose power is under control. Also, this one that was to come would be peaceful. He would be peaceful. Notice in verse, um, let's see, verses, the second half of verse 9, but then also um, throughout verse 10, actually we'll go ahead and read verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off 
and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This king who is coming would take the weapons even away from his own people. They wouldn't need them anymore. These weapons of war and of self-protection, um, exaltation, whatever it is, it says that he would remove them from his own people and because they wouldn't need them because his rule would extend from sea to sea and from the river that's the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. This king that would come would be very different from that those of Tyre and Sidon and Gaza and Eshkelon that we looked at earlier because of his great peace that he would bring. He would come not riding on a war horse, but riding on a donkey. Not only a humble animal, but also not a very warlike animal, not one that's, that's well suited for riding into battle. That's the level of peace that he will bring to his, con- his country, his people. But this king that's coming is not without his own weapons. In verse, verses 13 and then again in verse 15, it shows that he does have a different type of weapon. It says in verse 13, For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. I will wield you like a warrior's sword. So this king... In all of his great might and in all of his great power as he comes and as he brings an end to warfare by extending his own kingdom and by extending his own rule of peace, he doesn't, he doesn't do it um, just by himself or alone. He uses implements and he, what he uses is his people to extend his rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He invites his people who he is redeeming to to enter into this with him and he uses them to spread his kingdom and to grow it and even in their own deliverance he uses them of course this is all by the power of the Holy Spirit and then finally the great contrast that this king has with the king that has gone come before is in verses 7 the second half Um, that's not right hold on (laughs) oh yeah it says um, it too shall be a remnant for our God this king he will succeed and then in verse 8 the second half um, no oppressor shall again march over them unlike these these other kings all around, this king who is coming, this king who Zechariah is proclaiming, he's the one who's going to win. He's the one who's going to succeed in his, in his efforts and in his kingdom. It talks about all of them falling, Ashdod and Gaza and Eshkelon, Tyre and Sidon, all of them with their kings perishing. And it even says specifically about the king in verse 5, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. This king is very different because this king wins. He is the one who conquers and he is the one who will establish his kingdom forever so that never again will the oppressor march over them. There will be no end to that. And of course we know now that this king is Jesus. 
It's the one that we've come here this morning to worship. We've been invited into uh, fellowship with. And of Jesus, it says in Revelation eleven fifteen that um, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God, and he shall reign forever and ever. His success is guaranteed, and there will be no end to it. So what does this mean for us this morning? It's, a, it's beautiful poetry on the one hand. The, um, the, the comparison and the contrast of the great king and then the kings of the nations. It's, on one level, it's fun to think about, but how does it impact our lives? And how does it impact what, um, what we think and believe? Well, first of all, it calls us not to fear the kings of the earth, but to rejoice and believe. It's tempting when you see worldly power all around you, when you see horrible things happening like what happened in Nashville, and when you see um, political leaders around the world exalting themselves against God, it's tempting to fear. And it's tempting to fear in our own lives when we see um, people exalting themselves against us, our, sometimes our, even our friends and our neighbors, um, our co-workers, will exalt themselves for their own good and being the opposite of, of meekness, and we can see it, and we're, we're tempted to fear that, that they're the ones who are going to win out. And in that temptation, we're tempted to be like it, to exalt ourselves and to work for our own gain um, over those around us but this calls us to follow our Lord and Savior, to be like him, meek and lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just as he entered in meekness, so we go about our lives in that same meekness as we trust him, as we trust that it is his reign um, that will continue forever and ever. And then the second thing we do in response, when we hear this about our king, and we see that he is triumphing over all of his, his enemies, is to rejoice. We rejoice. It says so in, in verse 9. That's the call. That's the center of this whole passage. And especially that's what we're celebrating on Palm Sunday here and now. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And this, this was fulfilled in Christ. We can turn over there and read that in Matthew um, I'm sorry, in Luke 19, 37 through 40. Luke 19, 37. As Christ was entering in, says this, uh, that is in the wrong place. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, fulfilling this specific prophecy that we just read, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So as we see our king come, and as we see his kingdom grow in this world around us, in our families, and in our church, in our communities, the most natural response is the response that we're called to have, and that is to rejoice and to worship him continually in our lives and in our words. The second contrast that I'd like to look at in this passage in in Zechariah 9 is the contrast of blood. Blood is very, very prominent here. It says in verse 7, I will take away um, of the, the pride of Philistia and Ashdod. It says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God and shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like one of the Jebusites. And then down in verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So this theme of blood, it seems kind of icky, I guess, when you think about it. But the, the, the point here is that their man-made religion of all of these nations that were exalting themselves against the people of God, that religion was going to go away. And the... In the Old Testament, the worshipers of God um, were commanded uh, very clearly not to partake of the blood of the sacrifices. Some of the the sacrifices, particularly um, around Passover, they would eat themselves, but they were not allowed to have the blood. That was was off limits to them, but the the pagans did. They, They partook of it in their own sacrifices. So what's going on here is that all of this man-made religion is going away. And it's being replaced by the covenant that God has made with his people. And certainly when, they, when people heard this, they might not understand how would that actually take place. But they do have hints. Because it says in verse 7 um, about Philistia, it too shall be a remnant for our God. Those are the words that are usually used for the remnant of the people of God of, of Israel after, by the prophets after they've gone into exile and come back. It too shall be a remnant of our God. Even from these nations that have opposed God and from these kings of the earth that have, that have set themselves up against God whom God has opposed, even from them he will take out a remnant for himself. It says they shall be like a clan in Judah, like a group of the people of God, and even so... Are we this morning? We have been grafted in to the covenant that God has made, as it says in, in Romans 11. Um, we've been grafted into the people of God. We are now like ourselves as a church, even though I'm a Gentile. I'm sure most of you guys are Gentiles. We have been brought into that people, even as a clan in Judah. We are people who had no right to be there originally, apart from Christ. But by his grace, He's grafted us into the blood of his covenant, as it says in verse 11. He's brought us in to rescue us. And we need that. We need that desperately because of our sins. We need that atonement. The blood of the sacrifices that um, the nations around Israel made, that the enemies of God made, could not atone for their sins. It was man-made religion. And 
all of the man-made religions that exist will come to an end. It kind of reminds me of the, the history of medicine and of dietary science. Sometimes when you look back on it, it makes you cringe a little bit. It, um, you know, you think of some of the things that people used to do um, for medicine. I remember hearing one story, I think my wife actually told me this story a while ago, that there was one coach of a long-distance runner who wouldn't let his runners drink water. He wouldn't allow it. I think instead they had to, they had to drink some sort of acid. It was, it was horrible. It makes you cringe. Your soul, your soul cries out for those long-distance runners. You have to... Um, no, your body needs water. It doesn't need that. It needs something fresh. It needs something pure. You, I also think of the um, of George Washington, a familiar story that you know in 1799, I believe it was, uh, he was bled to death by his own doctors. You, your soul cries out against that sort of thing. No, this is an old man. He needs his blood. He needs that for his sustenance, for his for his strength. Don't do that. But of course, it's already happened. And just like those misguided medicines and um, diets that have harmed people in the past, man-made religion promises blessing, but is actually a deadly abomination. So what is the man-made religion of today? What do we tend to trust in that draws us away from Christ? Well, it's anything that promises to allow us to manipulate God or to gain access to God apart from Christ. So think of all the ways in which that man-made religion fails. Trying to, ple- <coughs> Sorry, trying to please God through our own vain religious efforts will fail, just like these religions did. If you were trusting in a prayer you prayed or a ceremony that you performed or any of the good things that you've done, if you're trusting in your baptism or your theology or the faith of your parents, all of those are good things, but they are not the things that actually save you. It is Christ himself and the blood of his covenant that saves you. And it is sure. It is sure. It says in verse 11, as for you also because of my blood, <clears throat> sorry, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It will happen Christ's covenant is reliable and is worthy of our trust. It will succeed where the other religions have failed. And so we must repent, turn away from our sins and turn toward Christ, trusting in the blood that he shed for us to cover our sins. The very last thing that I want to point out this morning is, um, is the rescue that's promised here. It says that the, that the God King will rescue his people forever. In verse 8, it says, um, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for, I see with my own, for now I see with my own eyes. Talks there about God's house. I will encamp at my house. And of course, we know that soon after Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he went into the temple, he went into the house of God and purified it. His zeal for his father's house 
um, was what drove him, was what drove him forward there. But this goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the temple that it's talking about. When it says, I will encamp at my house as a guard, it's talking about his people as a whole. No oppressor shall march over them, plural. It's not just the temple that's in view here. So if you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll read verses 4 and 5. First Peter 2, 4 and 5 says this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are that house, which now is the beneficiary of his zeal. We are the ones he will protect from the, the oppressors that come against us. And it goes on to talk about that rescue in uh, verses 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of the, my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. As waterless pits, they make for good prisons. Joseph was thrown down into one, and Jeremiah was thrown down into one. Um, they're easy, quick prisons that you can find. If it doesn't have water in it, you don't have to build one. It's just already there for you. But it's a horrible place to be. This oppression that the people of God were experiencing um, was really terrible. It calls them prisoners of hope. In the midst of that horrible oppression and in the midst of that, um, that bondage that they, that they were experiencing, they had hope and they were called to hope that Christ would rescue them through his work. And then in verse 16, it talks about how God will save them. 9.16 On that day the Lord their God will save them, or why he will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. It calls them jewels, it calls them a flock. And that is what the blood of the covenant has made us as God's people. This is a hard, a hard thing to think about this rescue from bondage a little bit because we still feel it around us. We still feel the bondage of the, the decay of our own flesh. We all age and we all experience sickness and we all experience pain. We feel the bondage um, to, to those to those kings of the earth still that I talked about, the powers around us, the, the temporal powers of this world, um, exalt themselves against God, and we still see that. And we still feel that bondage, and to some extent we see even temptation. The, the ever-present um, allure of sin 
is all around us in our lives. And so we cry out to our God, where is this salvation? Christ has come. And so where is it? But it's important to place ourselves in in the story exactly where we are. Because Christ has come. He has defeated sin and he has defeated death. But he is still coming. Growing his church and growing his kingdom throughout the world, it is still a process that's happening. Even as victory is sure, it's a process that goes on and he will come again. And that is a culmination of his salvation. He will ultimately rescue his people as the jewels of his crown and as a flock of sheep. We know this as the end of the story. It, it makes me think of, um, of World War II when, you know, the, after D-Day, the victory was won. It was basically over. Many of the Jewish general, oh, sorry, the Jewish, the German generals knew at that point that the the war was over and that they had lost, but they had to keep fighting um, for whatever reason. They kept on going. And so most American casualties in World War II were actually after D-Day, after the leaders of the enemy were already convinced of their own loss. And in the Pacific, General MacArthur His troops would always get angry at him because they would fight these huge pitched battles and they would win. And he would, and MacArthur would uh, proclaim that to the media. He would say, you know, the battle's over. We're done. We're just doing mopping up operations now. Those mopping up operations were sometimes awful. (laughs) They would stretch on and on for weeks against implacable foes that um, were vicious in their in their defense, even after the victory was won. And that's the time that we find ourselves in today. The victory has been won at the cross as we move towards Good Friday and then Easter Sunday when the victory over over the grave was finalized. The victory has been won. But this life as we go on for 2,000 years now since then is full of, of new bondages. It's full of new powers that oppose God. And so we must trust that God is the one who will ultimately reign and that Christ will establish his kingdom in its fullness. So flip over to Revelation 21, and I'll read 1 through 5 in closing. This is the hope that we are looking for. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, 
and making all things new. Christ's victory is sure. This mopping up operations will end. The victory that he secured on, um, on Easter morning will go forward into a victory over the whole earth. Now we can sing our hymn of response. This is uh, number 246 in your hymnals. It's Man of Sorrows, what a name. And when you get there, you can stand and we will sing that.